Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Liu. Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. I am honored to be joined today by Dr. Bob Lee. Dr. Lee is a medical oncologist in the Thoracic Oncology and Early Drug Development Service, co-director of the Thoracic Liquid Biopsy Program at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. He's also the Chief Scientific Officer of MSK Direct and MSK's Physician Ambassador to China and Asia Pacific. You may recognize Dr. Lee from his presidential plenary presentation at World Lung 2020, where he presented the registrational sotoracib data for KRAS G12C. Today, we will rely on his expertise in another area, her too. Bob, thanks for taking the time to join us today. Thank you so much, Stephen, for having me here. It's a real pleasure to be here. Now, in oncology, HER2 as a biomarker, as a therapeutic drug target, really bring to mind breast cancer. Can you tell us a little about the significance of HER2 in lung cancer? Thank you. Yes, that's absolutely right. HER2 in breast cancer has really changed, transformed the whole field uh, of breast cancer therapy. But in lung cancer, it's still an area of investigation over the last two decades. Since the early days of um, trastuzumab development back in the uh, 2000, uh, when it changed the standard of care for HER2-positive breast cancer, efforts have been made in, in targeting HER2 in lung cancer, but uh, despite great efforts, we've largely failed. And that's because, partly because HER2-driven lung cancers are not as common. It's about 2 to 3% HER2 mutation and 2 to 3% HER2 amplification that's driving non-small cell lung cancers, as opposed to 20% driving breast cancer. So the rarity of this disease makes clinical investigation a lot harder. And also the molecular complexity of HER2 in lung cancer also makes it difficult. Mutation, amplification, they're biologically different and requiring different approaches uh, with therapeutics. So for all those reasons, uh, we've not got a HER2 targeted agent approved to date. Now, you mentioned a few different HER2 alterations there. You also lead the, the thoracic liquid biopsy program at Memorial. How good is liquid biopsy at identifying some of these alterations? Yes, liquid biopsy is a great uh, biotech innovation that's come on board in the last few years, looking at a, mapping out the cancer genetics with a tube of blood uh, by sequencing for little fragments of tumor DNA or so-called circulating tumor, ctDNA. And by that, we can detect HER2 mutations and amplifications from a blood test. Getting tissue from lung cancer is not always easy. You require procedures that carry inherent risks, although it is something that we try to encourage as much as possible. But the liquid biopsy is a non-invasive tool that's uh, it's a tube of blood Patients get blood tests all the time. We just add it onto the routine blood test. And within a week or two, we know the results in, in many cases. And HER2 mutations and amplifications can be readily picked up on, on the liquid biopsy. Now, when we find these alterations, there are several available drugs that, that we use that have efficacy at HER2. 
Can we start by talking about some of the tyrosine kinase inhibitors? Now, that's our historic go-to for targeted treatment in lung cancer. Are there active TKIs for HER2-mutant lung cancer? Yes, yes. The uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors have really uh, been the poster child for lung cancer personalized medicine since the early days of EGFR inhibitors with uh, gefitinib and erlotinib. And we've used that approach to target HER2 mutations with uh, HER2 or PAN-HER tyrosine kinase inhibitors. As we know, uh, HER2 is a member of the receptor tyrosine uh, kinase family uh, or the human epidermal growth factor receptor family. So that sits on the cell uh, surface. Uh, That's responsible for cell signaling and growth and division and and the metastasis uh, uh, when it's on overdrive, but when it's mutant or amplified. And uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors are small molecules that bind to the, uh, the specific area in that kinase in, in around the cell surface and fits into a groove and tries to lock the cell signaling of HER2 and therefore switching and attempt to switch it off. Unfortunately, the binding of HER2 tyrosine kinase inhibitors are not so perfect with HER2 mutation in lung cancer. There's not a great pocket. You can insert a drug and just fit in perfectly. I mean, we we do have data on efficacy where there's a partial fit and it kind of locks it in some way, but it's not a perfect lock. So these efforts included a fatinib, dacomitinib, neratinib, and and a and several other tyrosine kinase inhibitors with showing response rates well, generally less than 20% uh, among various clinical trials. We published in the early days at, at phase two trial of dacomitinib, which showed a 12 13% response rate, and that was published uh, by Dr. Mark Chris and colleagues at uh, Annals of Oncology, and I was part of that team. Uh, that was back in 2015. And similarly, neratinib had been studied in HER2-mutant lung cancers. And neratinib as a single agent uh, only produced 4% response rate in a cohort of patients in the SUMMIT trial. And this was published by Dr. David Hyman and colleagues. uh, And uh, I was also part of that team in the Nature uh, publication in 2018. And that was 4%. It did benefit some patients. So for some patients, it was a partial sort of lock to the uh, tyrosine kinase, uh, but it was not a complete switch off. So only some patients benefited. Similarly, a fascinating, we had published various studies with case reports starting with case series and then gradually building to international case series. This was published by uh, Dr. Vicky Lai at the uh, European uh, Journal of Cancer in 2019. And uh, we also had a, a, a several European series with uh, Dr. Solange Peters uh, uh, and others uh, publishing journal thoracic oncology. And there was also a clinical trial that was phase two. Uh, Dr. Smith from the Netherlands was was uh, uh, leading that, and, and, uh, and among several other European colleagues, but all less than 20% response rate. So certainly not enough to to transform the standard of care, but uh, there had been some efficacy. The more later generation HER2 exon 20 specific uh, inhibitors using posiotinib or mobocertinib have also produced uh, some encouraging efficacy uh, looking at from 20, ranging from 20 to 40% in terms of response rate at various cutoffs of those trials. 
and the full data is is still need to be reviewed at a peer reviewed journal. But uh, the issue with those, uh, especially posyosinophilia, had in toxicity uh, with a skin rash and diarrhea, and uh, with modest efficacy. So those things need to be balanced. Uh, so unfortunately, TKIs, despite uh, very good attempts, have not uh, transformed the field yet. If we move to other classes of treatment, you know, the HER2 monoclonal antibody, trastuzumab, while important for breast, not that effective for, for lung cancer, but notable activity with antibody drug conjugates and a very active ADC in breast cancer is trastuzumab mtansin or TDM1. There was a pivotal study that also showed promising efficacy in HER2 mutant lung cancer, which happens to be a study that you led. Can you tell us about TDM1 in HER2 mutant non-small cell lung cancer? Absolutely, Stephen. Uh, the TDM1 story uh, was built upon the efforts using trastuzumab uh, monoclonal antibody uh, alone. We know in breast cancer that uh, they, they had to be combined with uh, chemotherapy to augment the efficacy. And they had to be done in patients with HER2 amplified or HER2 positive breast cancer uh, for it to work well. In lung cancer, there's just not that many HER2 amplified lung cancers, and particularly using older methods like, such as immunohistochemistry, we were not finding too many HER2 IHC3+. Plus. So the trials were more liberal in the inclusion criteria and included 1 plus and 2 plus, and unfortunately, those trials have largely failed and, and I think uh, due to inadequate patient selection. So six publications of trastuzumab were negative, including one randomized phase two trial with Dr. Gates-Meyer and colleagues published in the Annals of Oncology uh, more than a decade ago. So this was really dampened the mood and the, uh, that, that HER2 was just not a good target. But I think the truth is we didn't select the right patients with, with molecular uh, testing. So uh, my team has sought out to test TDM1, which is actually a single molecule that combines chemotherapy with uh, trastuzumab and and it's conjugated together in a single molecule. And the beauty of that is you can tell whether it works or not by itself. Whereas if you do trastuzumab combined with chemotherapy, sometimes it's very hard to tease out what is the relative contribution of trastuzumab versus chemotherapy alone? With TDM1, you kind of get an answer if it works or not because it has to really get into the HER2-driven cells for the chemotherapy payload of this ADC to get into the cancer and, and, and for it to work. So we, as part of a, a larger basket trial, this was back in 2014 when and my institution, Morris Lung Kettering, was... Uh, experimenting with this new hypothesis that uh, you can target any cancer if you get the right molecular alteration. So, so the concept of basket trials were just beginning at that time, and we were uh, targeting lung cancers and bladder cancers and colorectal cancer, endometrial cancer, and other cancers all within the one trial. So then we opened up a uh, HER2 mutant non-small cell lung cancer cohort as part of that basket study based on the previous sort of mixed results with trastuzumab, because there were some case series from Europe, especially led by Dr. Naziers and colleagues from France, that showed encouraging efficacy with, with trastuzumab when combined with chemo. So that we believe that the uh, 
the jury's still out on that one. So we pursued a TBM1 study in her to new lung cancer. And there was a case report that came out of Europe that showed activity. So we really wanted to do this in a prospective phase two trial with statistical hypothesis and, um, and, and, and really to answer this question and bring it to patients. And, and we were very pleased to see the positive results. You know, to me, this this was an important study. I mean, it led to the inclusion of TDM1 in the NCCN guidelines for HER2 mutant lung cancer. And I, I can tell you about personally, this helped several of my own patients get access to what I think is a tolerable and, and pretty effective treatment. So thanks for sharing the, the story behind that study. Jumping back to, to the data, we've seen very exciting data with a, a different ADC more recently, trastuzumab deruxtecan. Can you talk us through some of those results, maybe contrast them with TDM1? Yes, uh, I'm really pleased to hear about your, your uh, patient benefit, uh, Stephen. And uh, the TDXD or trastuzumab deruxtecan is really the next level in terms of HER2-ADC therapeutics in lung cancer. This was really using the same principle. It's a, it's a drug developed by Daiichi Sankir and co-developed with uh, AstraZeneca. And it's the same principle of antibody drug conjugate looking at a trastuzumab monoclonal antibody backbone with a linker to a chemotherapy payload. It's a different payload, the RUXTCAN. So it's a, uh, a TOPO1 inhibitor uh, in contrast to DM1, which is a microtubule inhibitor. So it's a different chemotherapy mechanism. But the mode of action is very similar. It has some enhanced capabilities compared to TDM1. It's got... Uh, uh, a membrane permeability um, uh, with a cleavable linker with bystander effects and therefore killing neighboring cancer cells, uh, not just the one that it enters into. So there are some enhanced uh, efficacy and the payload is much bigger in terms of drug to antibody uh, ratio. It's about eight versus four. So it can pack eight uh, payloads into a single trastuzumab anti- antibody. So with that improved uh, cytotoxic activity, we have seen in both the uh, phase one trial that was published in Cancer Discovery. This was Dr. Surutani from Japan, and I, I was the, uh, the code lead uh, and, and the uh, co-corresponding senior author on that paper in Cancer Discovery last year. We showed a, a 70% 70-plus uh, percent response rate in a small cohort of patients in that phase one trial. And then this led to the phase two trial, which is the Destiny Lung 01 trial presented by Dr. Smith from the Netherlands at uh, ASCO of last year. In that early interim analysis, we saw a 62% response rate in that cohort of patients. We pre-treated her to mutant non-small cell lung cancers. So a beautiful waterfall plot with tumor shrinkage in the vast majority of patients. So this to me, in terms of its uh, activity, is an improvement from the 44% response rate we saw uh, with TDM1. So it's using the same principle, but an enhancement with uh, a difference with the payload uh, and producing uh, even more encouraging uh, response rates. So that received the uh, breakthrough designation, breakthrough therapy designation from the US FDA, and we're on track to, um, uh, uh, to expand the study and hopefully aim for uh, uh, FDA registration in, in the future. Very impressive waterfall plots, very exciting data, a little more toxicity too, though. Um, you see a lot of sort of chemotherapy type toxicities, things that, that we didn't really see with TDM1, like a lot of myelosuppression, 
nausea, a little bit of pneumonitis too? Yeah, it certainly has a higher toxicity profile compared to the uh, TDM1, uh, which uh, was very, very well uh, tolerated in general. We did see some uh, low-grade pneumonitis in that. It was more than 10%. Um, Unfortunately, we had a robust pneumonitis management plan on the phase two trial, so uh, the patients were managed successfully. Uh, some patients had to come off the study because of uh, a persistent pneumonitis. In the phase one trial, and this is known in the uh, breast cancer literature and gastric cancer literature, that uh, there are some fatal pneumonitis. Some could lead to uh, drug-related deaths, and we reported that in the phase one paper in cancer discovery and as well reported in the uh, breast cancer and gastric cancer literature. So this remains an area of further investigation and improvement. It reminds me of the early days of immune checkpoint therapy uh, pneumonitis, where it could also lead to deaths and it was kind of scary. And then we quickly developed management algorithms and, uh, and, and uh, guidelines on how to do that. And most oncologists are managing them fairly easily uh, in, in practice, become part of practice. So we hope to understand more about uh, TDXD pneumonitis, the mechanism of action, the, the, the picture, the clinical pictures of these uh, uh, pneumonitis and ways to uh, reverse it or prevent it. So that's still undergoing further study. I mean, clear, clear activity, very exciting at, at uh, World Lung this year. We also saw some data from the overexpressed group. And you know, there's some activity there, but protein expression didn't seem to be as good of a biomarker, the response rate around... 25% or so. For the audience, could you explain why HER2 mutations, why a DNA change would be a better predictive marker for an antibody drug conjugate than expression of the protein itself? Obviously, I know the answer, but if you could explain maybe to the audience, I know you've published about this in, in Cancer Discovery. Yes, uh, Stephen, that's a really important uh, scientific question. And uh, it actually came as a surprise to uh, to many uh, in the field that it would work so well in HER2 mutations, which don't necessarily express HER2 protein on the surface. They're mutated, hyperactivated, but don't express that much. And some, some of them, when we did the uh, uh, TDM1 study and looked at the uh, uh, biomarker analysis, we found IHC0 in some of those uh, her two mutant cancers and still responded to TDM1. So the similar story with TDXD. With zero or low expression, these mutated cases tend to respond to ADC. And traditional dogma in ADC uh, science is that you need very large levels of expression uh, of her two protein on the cell surface to catch the ADC uh, and drive that into the cell. And that's always been the dogma. So in fact, when I uh, pushed through the uh, uh, the herpes mutant lung cancer cohort in that basket trial, uh, even internally at MSK, we had pretty lively debates about that, whether we should include it, because traditional dogma says that mutations without expression are not going to respond. But uh, we did also have data that it, it would uh, respond, at least anecdotal data. So uh, then we were able to study this and, and show that it did work. So it came as a surprise. So we went back to the lab to study why that mutations would respond so well. And we found that the mutation in HER2 actually produces increased trafficking 
of the HER2 receptors into the cell. So the natural cycle of HER2 is that it undergoes the ubiquitination, degradation, and then the internalization, lysosome degradation, it gets recycled and back into the surface. So it, there's a constant cycling uh, going on. And that mirrors the ADC mechanism of action. And we found that these HER2 mutant cell lines actually had increased trafficking into the cell. And we then mirrored that in, in various experiments in the cell, and we saw an increased internalization of the ADC HER2 receptor complex. The ADC drug gets internalized and trafficked into the cell faster if you have the mutations. So then we test that in the mouse, and the, uh, the patient-derived xenograft mouse models. We found the same thing, that it works better. Uh, and then, of course, back to the clinic. And then we found this extraordinary efficacy in patients. So the, the underlying principle is about internalization, that the, the mutant uh, cancer cells actually uh, traffics the drug into the cell, just sucks it in you know, from outside without a, a lot of receptors on the cell surface, but it's hyperactivated and that trafficking is nonstop. So then you don't need a lot of protein on the cell surface because it's constantly sucking the drug into the cell. So because of that, it provides an explanation on why mutants work better. And then the, the protein expression story is still being studied. The destiny lung one overexpression cohort excluded patients with HER2 mutations. We simply looked at IHC 2 plus and 3 plus, 25% response rate. It's you know, heavily in a pretreated population, it, it, it's still of some uh, clinical value and, and some promise in that. I think it requires further study. And we need to really understand how many of them are hurt to amplify it because um, amplification usually drives uh, a high overexpression of HER2. And we, we may be able to see an enriched response rate in that population. And that study has to, uh, is still ongoing. So I think it, uh, we haven't completely given up on the HER2 expression story, but uh, the mutants do seem to traffic more, uh, traffic the drug more into the cells and hence work. It works better there. Really, really well put. Thank you. Thank you for that, Bob. Let's move on here in the clinic outside of a trial. What's your frontline approach for HER2 mutant lung cancer? And does immunotherapy play a role for this disease? Yeah, this is, this is still uh, an open question. In my practice, the frontline, first-line therapy for metastatic HER2 mutant non-small cell lung cancer is still standard chemoimmunotherapy based on the, uh, uh, the randomized phase three trials in that setting, uh, whether it's uh, Makino 1A9 or Empower 150 or the other trials that have come on board, uh, I have uh, largely still stuck to that because the uh, intention to treat analysis included patients with HER2 mutations. So uh, I'm applying that to still uh, to that first line setting. We don't have a lot of data on HER2 targeted therapy in the first line setting yet. So I think we need to study that actively and uh, there will be uh, first line studies, perhaps uh, HER2 directed antibody drug conjugates in that setting in the first line in comparison to the uh, standard chemo immunotherapy. But that still remains a question uh, that's uh, to be answered. But right now, outside of the trial, it's uh, based on the literature and the evidence we produced it's HER2 ADCs in the second line setting, and that's TDXD or TDN1. 
in, in that setting. And you can still sequence the TDM1 with TDXD. In the phase one trial, we produced some responses in patients who were refractory to TDM1. They had already pro progressed on TDM1, but responded to TDXD, and that was uh, highlighted in the uh, uh, in my paper in Cancer Discovery last year. And by switching the payload, you can render a second response and overcome TDM1 resistance. So to me, it's almost like chemotherapy uh, response. If you're resistant to, to docetaxel, you can switch to gemcitabine and it could still work. So similarly, you can switch from TDM1 to TDXD. Can you switch the other way around from TDXD to TDM1? I don't know yet. I, I'm trying to produce some data on that. So um, that's a, a point in, in practice uh, that you can certainly do some sequencing uh, there. But the immunotherapy is an unanswered question. We've had, uh, if you do single agent immunotherapy, the response rate is very low. Dr. Mazias published in his Annals on Oncology uh, paper uh, that the, um, uh, uh, the single agent immune checkpoint response in this population uh, is only about 7%, uh, so it's very low. The uh, retrospective analysis at uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering conducted by my colleague, Dr. Lai, uh, and colleagues uh, and, uh, and my team had um, presented at ASCO that uh, among the 10-15% responses that we saw, those patients had a high TMB score or a high pdl one So it's not zero. There's some HER2 mutants who still respond to immunotherapy, perhaps enriched with other biomarkers. So in my practice, uh, I tend to combine the immunotherapy with chemotherapy for uh, HER2 mutants to, to just try to maximize their efficacy. And that's still the first line setting, the uh, first line uh, standard as of today. That's well, a, a really great summary of the target. Bob, this is clearly an important molecular subgroup of non-small cell lung cancer. It's great to see several promising agents in development. If I could take just a little more of your time, could you maybe share with our audience a little about your own career path? You came to, to Memorial in 2014, is that right? Yes, uh, thank you, Stephen. That was the uh, really a life-changing uh, year for me. I come from Australia, I grew up in Sydney and uh, did my medical school and primary school, high school, medical school, everything in Sydney and residency training, fellowship training at the uh, Royal North Shore Hospital, uh, University of Sydney. And then I was uh, in my final year and uh, of, of fellowship and always had always wanted to come to the U United States to experience the best in medicine. And I had that uh, yearning since early internship. And when it came to cancer, MSK became a, uh, a very attractive option. And plus my wife was uh, very keen to uh, go to New York uh, with me. So that was the uh, preferred destination all along. I had the uh, good fortune uh, of having uh, Dr. Mark Chris as my uh, fellowship mentor, and uh, also together with Cliff Huddis, uh, who was also my fellowship co-mentor in breast cancer. And I was able to do a lung and breast fellowship uh, at Memorial Sloan Kettering, and as part of our fellowship program, there's an advanced oncology fellowship program for people like me, and, um, and I was accepted. And this allowed me to spend a year in each disease type 
to gain an understanding. And this was still favored by the uh, Australian institutions. We wanted, we were not as super sub-specialized. So most of the uh, oncologists practice in two tumor streams uh, in Australia. Maybe it's a population and, and for various other logistical, it's a smaller population. So that was my goal at the time, was to do become a breast slash lung oncologist and come back to Sydney and and set up my uh, practice and, and be an academic at the University of Sydney. Uh, I had a full uh, faculty career all planned. Bought a house in Sydney, you know, it was all, uh, and my uh, in-laws were uh, ready to look after the grandchildren. So I had my life pretty much set uh, back then. Spend two years in MSK and then go back to Sydney, have a good life. Uh, then it was life changing. So MSK, it was such an incredible experience working at MSK. It was such an intellectually stimulating environment. Everyone was trying to go in the same goal, curing cancer and bringing different uh, talents and expertise and perspectives to the table. There was a free exchange of ideas, of openness. And this was at a time when uh, basket trials were being explored. And I came into MSK as a student, a PhD student of the University of Sydney. And my PhD hypothesis was targeting breast and lung cancers using the uh, same uh, the molecule. So it was targeting HER2 in lung cancer. So I was able to, through that framework, uh, borrow what I learned from Cliff Huddles and others in breast and then translate that into uh, lung cancer. And so therefore, all the discoveries in breast we've been experimenting in lung in a proper manner. And that led to the TDM1 trial, which I actually wrote back in Australia, but was further refined at the AACR Vail workshop uh, when I came to the States. In, in fact, I landed in in, in uh, end of June, and then uh, by uh, end of July, I was off to Vail to uh, do that boot camp, uh, one week protocol writing. And that that protocol uh, was completed at Vail. Uh, I didn't do any skiing. I was just writing the protocols. Uh, and uh, with the help of the Vail mentors, I got it uh, completed and then submitted to the IRB. Uh, a lot of support from Genentech at the time for this investigator-sponsored trial. And uh, we could just you know, bring an idea, bring it with the power of writing uh, and, and just make it into a reality. So it was just incredibly satisfying uh, to see it, to, to see these ideas and translate them into saving lives in the clinic. And, you know, like, like you, I've had my own patients who were having really tough time with progressive cancer and then they respond and, and they do well. It's just so satisfying to see that happen, let alone see that happen, you know, because of the, the, the writing uh, that you've done, you know, in, in, in the evenings you know, on the laptop. So that's, and, and, and because and one thing led to another, MSK just uh, uh, asked me to, uh, to stay, uh, to join the faculty, to continue the mission, the good work. I mean, it just uh, uh, was, a, was an opportunity that was too good to, uh, uh, to give up. And I, I think I, even if I had chosen the original path of going back to uh, Sydney, I would be probably enjoying 
a relaxed uh, life, but uh, would be missing. Would be missing what what had I, uh, what if I stayed on? You know, I'd be maybe regretting that. Um, so definitely still part of me misses home very much, but this is really what's fulfilling about life is to put all your education, all those years of, of hard work into uh, a, a contribution that you can make to the world and to your patients. And through that, because of my background coming from Australia, I was born in China, uh, in Shanghai, to speak the language. So I, I, as a Chinese Australian, uh, MSK gave me another title, so the uh, physician ambassador to China and Asia Pacific, which covers Australia. So through that um, uh, international outreach program, I was able to continue my partnership with uh, my friends and colleagues, uh, mentors in Australia, continue our international research uh, in that front and still make a contribution to back home in Australia. In fact, we've published quite a few liquid biopsy papers together. It's actually helped patients down under as well. So I'm very proud of that work. Uh, and really thankful to uh, to MSK for that kind of outside the box type of thinking and opportunity, and now the collaboration with colleagues uh, and collaborators and scientists, physicians in China to uh, accelerate international clinical trials. It's bringing the world together to accelerate trials because, as you know, Stephen, trials take a long time and most trials fail. So to get a drug developed, it's a ten to fifteen year process. And most fail through that process. And if you just cycle 10 or 15, a couple of cycles, that's anyone's career, anyone's lifespan. Uh, and that's why if we keep going at this rate uh, of 10 to 15 years each, uh, then uh, you know when our grandchildren get, get old, uh, they're still going to be facing the same problem. So through international collaboration, getting the world together, we can accelerate trials much faster. We can do a 10-year trial in maybe one to two years. So with that kind of scalability, getting having China on board, having other Asia-Pacific countries on board, uh, thinking along the same lines uh, as academics with industry collaboration, government collaboration, we can uh, do multiple choose of these trials in, in very much uh, shorter time frame to answer questions much quicker and, and hopefully you know, save more lives in, in that process. So that's sort of my uh, career uh, path in a nutshell. And that 2014 was a defining turning point for me and it's led to this day, 2021. I don't have a uh, return home date uh, as, as of yet. Still got a ton of work to do. Uh, but I'm very excited about the future. Thank you for sharing that, Bob. The the perspective, the initiative, uh, everything you mentioned just aligns so closely with with I think everything that ISLC is is trying to do. And you know, we just closed out World Lung Meeting, which was virtual this year. We, we heard you on the the virtual podium. Uh, congratulations for that. We always love to hear about our guests' experience with the the, the World Conference on Lung Cancer, the ISLC annual meeting. What was it like to present that virtually at World Lung? And you know, for you, is there another World Lung meeting that kind of stands out for you? Thank you, Stephen. Uh, World World Lung and ISLC has been really uh, uh, crucial to my um, academic career development. Actually, uh, when I worked in Sydney with uh, Nick Pavlakis and Stephen Clark, who are also ISLC members and. Uh, and and uh, regularly attend uh, World Lung. I 
I had the uh, good fortune of following their footsteps and joining uh, as a member back then. And my first World Lung was uh, at uh, the World Lung 2013 in Sydney. And that's when my memorial uh, colleagues came down and came to uh, my hometown in Sydney. And we had a very nice dinner with my Sydney mentors and the uh, MSK future mentors at that time. Uh, and that was a, a defining uh, world run for me. And uh, subsequent world lungs have always been very memorable. I mean, the, uh, my first oral presentation at World Lung was in Yokohama. Uh, that was a couple of years ago, 2017. And I presented the TDM1 uh, results in HER2 mutant as well as HER2 amplified uh, lung cancers that showing encouraging response rates. And that was a really good learning experience for me to be able to share this with colleagues and you answer the press with press conferences, and then you have lots of academic follow-up uh, afterwards uh, to collaborate and take a step forward. And I met so many wonderful collaborators from a translational angle uh, since then. Of course, being at Yokohama, uh, that was a lot of uh, nice food, uh, Japanese uh, feasting uh, back then. It was just so memorable. So that's what I miss about it in, in, in from the going to, uh, to a virtual meeting. We miss that kind of uh, adventure. Maybe the gastronomic experience is missing. Um, and uh, and just to get out, just being away from uh, from your usual work environment, just to go to somewhere new and to uh, hang out with, with colleagues and friends, that part is also missing. But I think this year's World Lung was really, really well handled given the really tough situation that we're in with COVID-19. And it was facing the unknown. You know, we don't know when COVID-19 was going to end. So we, we postponed it, we delayed it, and then we held it virtual. But it, it turned out really well. I think the connectivity was great. The um, they were, We were still able to do a lot of live interactions and Q&As. Uh, the waking up at 3 o'clock in the morning wasn't easy uh, for some of the sessions. But... Uh, uh, you know, it, it, for the most part, it, it really brought the world together, and I think it's a, it was a wonderful meeting. And I, I'm also very encouraged just by the fact that we have COVID-19 that does not stop us from curing cancer. I think that's a very strong, powerful message, even outside of the, the academic uh, world. I think people would take this uh, as, as quite an encouraging message. Uh, that clinical trials have not stopped, the academic breakthroughs have not stopped. And we continue to work uh, and we'll adapt to the environment and that does not stop us from fighting the uh, uh, cancer. So, so very much uh, congr congratulations to everyone, all the members and the organizing organizers at, at World Final. Very well put, Bob. Very well put. You know, let's wrap up this this episode. I want to thank you, Bob, for your time, for your insights for the inspiring work that you're doing. I'd like to thank the audience for listening as well. Don't forget to like the podcast, to share it with your colleagues and friends. Stay safe and be well. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.